back to a story you know so well. In fact, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, this is probably the account of Scripture you know the best. Whether you have been in Sunday school just for a few years or you have decades under your belt of being with Christ's people, you know this story, the story of Calvary, probably better than anything else. And you should. And it's a little bit like uh, being ripe then to assume you know all the details and all the facts and all the angles and, and really don't need to pay much attention to the text that is before us. So that really is why John is writing his gospel record. He writes decades after the other three have written and been in circulation in the church. And, and he writes not to correct the historical record, not, not to say, well, yeah, it actually happened this way, but actually to just add new information to give a, a fresh take on all of that happened in the life and ministry of Jesus. John's gospel is kind of like that experience maybe you've had at a family reunion where you're, you're with your dad and his brothers or some family dynamic like that, and your dad starts telling the story that you've heard millions of times. In fact, you, you behind his back start repeating the story, you know, mouthing the, the words, because you know how he's going to tell it, and and you start mimicking his, his body language and his gestures because you've seen it a million times and you know how this is going. And, and he gets through the story and everybody laughs and you mock, laugh. And then all of a sudden, your out-of-town uncle says, yeah, but you forgot to tell him about. And he adds some new detail to this story from their childhood that you've never heard before. And when that happens, you lean in. He has got your attention. You're hanging on his every word because you want to know, well, what has my dad not told me? What new detail have I not heard? This is kind of like what John is to the gospel record. It's kind of like that out-of-town uncle that sheds new light, new perspective to the story of Jesus. In our specific text this morning, we see details that are unique to the apostle John. The other gospel writers tell us about the clothes being divided by the soldiers, but John tells us about the tunic that was seamless and how it was a fulfillment of Scripture as it was bartered for by the soldiers. The other gospel writers tell us about the women near or at the scene of the cross, but John tells us specifically their names and and that they were near the cross and and says explicitly what Jesus says to Mary and then to John, his beloved apostle. These are unique statements from John to give us new detail that we might lean into the text and listen with fresh ears again. John 19, verse 23 says this, as I encourage you to lean in with a fresh desire to hear and heed the word. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, He said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Beloved, what a scene. 
our Lord hanging on an execution stake as four soldiers barter for his last earthly possessions at his feet. And a few yards away, four women stand, courageous in their faith and great in their grief. As we see the depths of human depravity in the soldiers, and as we see the the curse of sinfulness upon our Lord on the tree, we're confronted once again with the unmatchable glory of Jesus. Only Jesus of Nazareth could shine in these moments. I hope you are more convinced of that than you've ever been before. As we see the crucifixion of our Lord, only Jesus could make his glory known here. I want to show you that glory through this text as John gives us these fresh details. I want you to to look at the scene again and listen to the Savior again. So first, looking at the scene, as you see what's happening here, what do you see as you gaze upon Calvary with fresh eyes of faith? Well, we see four soldiers bartering for Jesus' clothes at the foot of the cross, and next to them we see four women standing nearby. In the scripture, we see uh, scripture itself being fulfilled, and we see great contrast being displayed. So it's a scene of fulfillment, and it's a, a scene of contrast. A scene of fulfillment, first of all, in how John gives us these details. He says these soldiers had crucified Jesus. In other words, their duty was done. In Roman standard operation, they would have four soldiers appointed to each execution stake. They would take the prisoner and fasten them to the cross with those nails that we described last time. They would drop that cross into its assigned hole, and then they would have nothing more to do but wait for the prisoner to die. And so John says it so matter-of-factly. They crucified him and, and then had nothing better to do with their time but to figure out what to do with this man's clothes. The clear insinuation from the text is that he's going to die on that cross. He will not be needing these anymore. No one comes down from an execution stake in Rome alive. And for these men, you might be appalled to see no emotion, no sympathy, no compassion. They don't even move away from the cross to deal with the clothes. They just do it right there in front of the prisoner who is dying. Where are their sensibilities? These are professional professional executioners. This is what they do. This is another day on the job for them. We wouldn't expect the grave digger to get teary-eyed at every grave he digs. Nor would we expect every Roman soldier to get teary-eyed at every criminal dying on a Roman execution stake. While they wait, they take Jesus' belongings and part them up between themselves. Likely, these are the, the four parts of his clothing, his outer robe, his belt, his sandals, and his headpiece. They maybe uh, threw dice or drew lots to see who got which one, and then they get to the fifth piece, the tunic. It's basically a long, thin garment worn underneath the outer robe and right next to the skin. And they got to that, and it was a seamless garment, uh, unique to Jesus, and it was unable to be parted easily. And so the soldiers logically said, let's not part it, but let's cast lots to see who gets it all in one And just stop and consider again that they had no qualms about tearing the body of Jesus, but they were hesitant to tear the clothes of Jesus. So typical of the unbelieving world. As they divide up Jesus' clothes, John tells us that they are themselves fulfilling Scripture. He connects their 
actions to the prophetic word of Psalm 22 and verse 18, spoken by David a thousand years prior. As they walk in their sinful depravity and do their normal wicked deed at the cross of a killed and crucified prisoner. John wants you to know that God had this plan before the foundation of the world. That he was working out his foreordained plan even in this moment through these heinous and careless and loveless men. This man hanging on the cross is made known to be our Savior as he fulfills Psalm 22 even in this moment. There's more fulfillment happening here though. We see these women, we'll talk about them in a moment, but you see, first of all, Mary. She jumps to the front of the scene in your eyes first, doesn't she? The mother of Jesus. Your first reaction is, why is she there? Your second reaction is, well, why could she not be there? How could she be anywhere else? It's appalling and yet understandable that she would be at the foot of her son's cross. What mother could stay away from her son's suffering, and yet what mother could stand to watch him agonize so terribly? These moments of grief and sorrow for Mary are moments of fulfillment. Words spoken to her earlier in life by Simeon. You remember these words in Luke 2. Luke 2 says, And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. This is indeed the moment in which Mary's soul is pierced through with the agony of her beloved son. These words of prophecy spoken earlier in Jesus' life were to let Mary know that though she had great privilege in being the human mother of Jesus, she would have great sorrow in being the human mother of Jesus. She had known unrivaled bliss to be the virgin selected by God to carry the Messiah. And she knows unrivaled sorrow in the inhumane death of Christ on the cross. As A.W. Pink so aptly said, if Jesus is the man of sorrows, ought not Mary be the woman of sorrows? Indeed, she was. This is a scene of fulfillment. It's also a scene of contrast. Consider the, the stark contrast of this text. Jesus is accomplishing the glorious work of redemption for sinners on the cross, and contrasted to that are these soldiers dividing up clothes. Here is Jesus suffering in these moments the eternal weight of our sinfulness, and here are these soldiers worried about where these clothes are going to end up and whose possession will they be. This is the unbelieving world put on display in one text, happily caught up with the physical cares and concerns in this life with little to no thought of spiritual matters of the soul in the world to come. They're happy to cast lots, as it were, at the foot of the cross rather than to raise their eyes of faith upon a crucified Savior. These are the soldiers contrasted to our Savior. But the more obvious contrast in the scene is between the soldiers and the women, right? Right next to these callous and careless soldiers, we see these four women of courageous faith. What a scene, four soldiers and and four women within yards of each other at the cross of Jesus. Notice that John is careful how he describes these women. He gives us the names of two of them, and then he 
describes the relationships of the other two. So he tells us that the mother of Jesus was there. We know her name to be Mary. And then he says that Mary's sister, that her sister was there. And then Mary, the wife of Clopas, was there. And then Mary Magdalene. So we have three Marys and another lady, right? That's the, the scene of these four women. Well, who's that other lady? Well, we know from Mark 15, verse 40, that she is likely Salome. Salome, the wife of Zebedee. Zebedee, the father of James and his brother John, right? The sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. So we have at this cross the the mother of Jesus, the, the human mother of Jesus, and his aunt and his cousin, John. Mary, the wife of Clopas, is also likely the mother of two of the apostles, Joseph and uh, James, the lesser. And Mary Magdalene is the lady who we're told in Luke 8 had seven demons cast out of her and was part of the women who followed Jesus and supplied their every physical need. In fact, interesting side note, probably the clothes being bartered for in front of their very eyes are the clothes that they had provided for Jesus. And they watched this careless, loveless act by these selfish soldiers. These women stand here in courageous faith and tremendous grief. They've all stood when all of the disciples have left. Where are the other men? Where are the 11 disciples of Jesus, the 10 outside of John? Where have they gone? They've all fled for their lives, this chaotic scene of suffering and shame. And yet here are these four women, devoted and dedicated and courageous, standing at the foot of our Lord. These women will be the last ones at the cross and the first ones at the tomb. They're committed and devoted in their faith. Models to us of bold, resilient, resolved, They stand near the cross where our Savior dies, stripped of his clothes and dressed in our condemnation. Do you remember when Adam and Eve, after sinning in the garden, were made to leave so that they would not eat of the tree of life? Before they left, you remember that God made clothes for them, dressed them so, so as to cover their shame before they left the garden of Eden. And this has been the practice of humanity, and rightly so, to clothe ourselves and cover our nakedness and our shamefulness in our sinfulness. Here is the second Adam, stripped of all of his clothes, exposed in all of that shame, and namely clothed in our condemnation robed in our judgment, encased in our sinfulness. He suffers and dies on the cross of Calvary. And he does that so that you, by his sacrifice, can be fully clothed one day. So you and I, in Christ, can be given the robes of righteousness in Jesus and enter into the new garden the new heavens and the new earth and spend eternity with God as he dwells with us and and we with him. Our Savior being disrobed, we will be fully robed. What a glorious Savior. 
You've looked at the scene, now listen to the Savior. Listen to what he says in these moments. He speaks words of clarity and compassion and completion. These words are likely the third thing that Jesus has said from his cross. They're happening sometime in the first three hours of his suffering. At about noon, the gospel writers tell us that darkness will fall upon the land and Jesus will speak four more times in, uh, as he suffers on the cross. And here in the, the midst of this excruciating physical pain of our Lord, we hear these words of great clarity from his lips. And what does he say? Seeing Jesus, or seeing Mary and seeing John, Jesus says, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. Notice again that John does not call Mary mother, but woman. We studied this in John 2. We, we know this is not a derogatory term as it would be in our culture today. It's, it's similar, not quite exactly the same, but similar to saying ma'am. It's a term of respect, but it's also a term of distance. He's putting things in order, even from the cross. He's clarifying the relationship, even as he gasps for his final breaths. As you read through the Gospels, you'll find that Jesus never once refers to Mary as his mother. In fact, only twice are we given the the words of direct conversation between Jesus and Mary. And both times in the Gospel of John, John 2 and John 19, he addresses her as woman. A term of respect and a term of distance. The most significant of those interactions, obviously, is here in John 19. These words clarify the relationship between Mary and her physical son, Jesus. She's letting us know she is not the mother of God, as some religions would like to make her out to be. She was indeed the mother of Jesus, birthed him into this world. Jesus was much more than a son to Mary. He was the one sent from heaven, the eternal word who took on flesh through the womb of Mary. And so he speaks to her in these moments, words of legal disposition. It's almost a contractual statement in which he's making it publicly known. Our relationship is now different. He's passing off his responsibility of being the the caregiving son of his mother to someone else. The relationship is changing. There's astounding foresight here by our Lord. Praise be to God that this is here. God obviously knew ahead of time that man-made religious systems would take Mary and her relationship with Jesus and exalt Mary to a place of worship and, and honor that she obviously is not due in the Scriptures. And the beauty of Jesus' words here is that he cuts that heresy off at the past before it ever gets into the minds of men. He makes clear right here the relationship between Mary and Jesus. Centuries after the cross, the, the veneration of Mary, the exaltation and worship of Mary would find its way into the church to the point where now today the Roman Catholic Church views Mary as a co-redemptrix, one who was herself immaculately conceived, born in a supernatural way. Therefore, they consider her to be sinless and picture her to be one who secures our redemption with her son, the Lord Jesus. They describe her as being equal to Jesus and being worthy of honor and glory. John Phillips, a commentator on this text, tells of visiting the church of Mary in Vichy, France. 
In the dome of the church, there's a a mural of Mary and Jesus, so he says, and around the, the dome are two messages, one exalting Jesus and one exalting Mary. The one exalting Jesus is a quote of John 3.16, good choice. The one exalting Mary says this, it's a quote from Bernard of Clairvaux, it is God's will that we should receive all things through Mary. This is at the center of Roman Catholic Maryolatry idolizing of Mary, exalting her to a position that God never intended. If you went to a Roman Catholic church in, uh, in Rome itself, one of them has a, a statue of Jesus on the cross suffering for our sins. And as you walk around the backside, there Mary hangs on her own cross as co-redemptrix for us in their view. These thoughts have, have abounded in the church of Rome for over a thousand years. They've now made their way into the dogma of the Church of Rome through the Council of Trent, that she has been immaculately conceived and without sin, that she was assumed into heaven rather than dying a natural death, that she's now bodily present before the Father and the Son, and that people should bow before her images and light her candles and pray to her in her name, and and hopefully she will petition the Father on your behalf. Based on this text in John 19, many within the Roman Catholic tradition view Mary as the mother of all of the children of God, that she was given to John as, as symbolic of giving her to the church, and now she is not just the mother of God, but also the mother of all believers, hence of, of all of the church. What is absolutely wonderful about Scripture is its clarity speaking truth into our error at every turn. Jesus, through his words, makes clear that Mary does not hold some exalted position. Rather, she is like any other disciple. She who prayed for her own redemption in Luke 1, rejoicing in the Savior to come who would save her from her iniquity, is now here at the cross of Jesus, an obedient believer who needs the very work he's accomplishing to save her own soul. The text goes on to say that John, from that hour, took her to his own home. That's instructive. That's not just a a statement about the ongoing care from then on for Mary from John. Rather, it's a a statement about the timing of that care. That that John, right then, believed and obeyed Jesus and, and removed Mary from the scene. Heard in Jesus this Command of compassion. This is no place for your mother. Get her out of here. And so John removed her from the scene. I think you see that clearly in in how the narrative goes in John. There's a lot of things John misses in his narrative that the other Gospels have. And part of that is because he didn't see them. He wasn't an eyewitness. In verse 35, he will say, I was an eyewitness to all these things. And he goes from the statement about Uh, Behold your mother and behold your son to the very end of the suffering of Jesus on the cross. I thirst and it is finished. That's what we'll cover next week. Well, there's hours of suffering in there that we know about from the other gospel writers. John took Jesus, or took Mary, excuse me, the mother of Jesus, and removed her from the scene and cares for her at his own home in Jerusalem and then returns to the scene. We also see this transition, by the way, in the other Gospels. You can see this in Mark 15 and again in Matthew 27, where we're told that, that the crowd of women were standing back away from the cross. The scene you get in John is that they're right there, and I believe they are. 
But after Mary is removed and as the suffering intensifies, and I think particularly as the darkness falls at noon, the crowd moves back. And they stand from a distance and watch. And these same other three ladies are named in those texts as still being there. The noticeable absence is Mary, the mother of Jesus. So Jesus cares for his mother and says to John, remove her from the scene. You see how clarifying this is? How is Mary our co-redemptrix when she wasn't even at our Redeemer's death? She wasn't even on scene when he suffered and bled and died for us. Not only that, but she's also not the mother of all believers or the mother of the church. Jesus commits Mary to John, not John to Mary. Jesus is not saying to uh, this situation that Mary is now the mother of John and is to care for him and have authority over him and all who come after him. No, he is, as the oldest adult son, caring for his widowed mother, making sure she's provided for in the days to come. These words from Jesus' cross are words of clarity. They're also words of compassion. With bones out of joint, with blood flowing from multiple open wounds on his body, hanging from spikes driven through his wrists and his ankles, pushing up on those spikes to gasp for breath as he's crushed under the the weight of his body's position on the cross. As he does that, scraping open the scabbed wounds on his back every time he pushes up for breath, feeling the sharp pain of the crown of thorns stabbed into his brow, listening to the arrogant mockery of men who pass by and shame him publicly. Not to mention the spiritual dimension in which he will repeat the words of the psalmist in Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken? Having pressed upon him the the guilt and the weight of our sin as he is smitten for our transgressions and afflicted for our healing. In the midst of all of this, he has the wherewithal and better yet the compassion to care for his mom and his closest disciple. This is not the only act of compassion on the cross. This actually probably shouldn't surprise us. As they first were crucifying him and getting his cross in place, you remember his words of compassion to those who crucified him. Father, forgive them. They do not know the weight of what they are doing. Then as he suffered and bled and died and The thieves on each side mocked him together, and then one recognizes that this Jesus is innocent and does not deserve to die, and and probably actually is exactly who he said he is, the king of Israel. And in repentant faith, gasping for breath, says to the Savior, remember me when you come into your paradise, into your kingdom. And Jesus says, today you will be with me Listen, if there's ever a sinner who did not deserve the mercy and love of God, it's that guy. Jesus, in compassion, says, today, you'll be with me. You're one of mine. And so he says to his mother, 
Behold your son. And to his disciple, behold your mother. He's showing concern for her in the moment. He knows what's coming. He knows this is not where Mary should be. Says to John, remove her from the scene. But it's beyond that. It's the future as well. The evidence of the gospel is that Joseph is no longer alive, no longer on scene. We don't see him after the incident of, uh, in Luke 2 where they go to the temple at the age of 12 with Jesus. Jesus is the caregiver for his mom. Mary is now a widow. Widows are cared for by their families, namely their eldest sons. And Jesus, in compassion, is securing her ongoing care by giving her a son in his place to care for her needs as a widow. That is astounding. But it's not just compassion to Jesus. It's also compassion to John. Because the last time Jesus and John had interacted, it was in the garden when Jesus, under the weight of, of anticipating what was coming, had asked John and Peter and James, pray with me. Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. What did John do? Promptly fell asleep. Came back. You not watch one hour? Watch and pray with me that you enter not into, into temptation. Came back again. What did John do? Fell asleep. This is their last interaction. And, and now here from the cross, Jesus looks to his beloved disciple and, and in compassion essentially restores their relationship entrusting to his beloved disciple, his own mother. You failed me in the garden, but you're not going to fail me here. Behold your mother. This is the compassion of our Savior. He who is suffering in incomprehensible ways completes these acts of sacrificial love with compassion. These are also words of completion. The the words of compassion also are words of, of fulfillment or completion. With these words to, to Mary and to John, Jesus is bringing to a close his responsibility to the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother. He has kept the law in every way. Every jot and tittle has been obeyed by our Savior. And this is his last act of obedient honor for his mother. You might be asking the question, as was asked in my Sunday school class, why did Jesus not commit his mother to his half-brothers? Well, for one, they're not there. We're told in, earlier in John that they didn't believe in Jesus until after the resurrection. They were skeptical, in fact, antagonistic to Jesus. Remember in, in John 7, I think it is, when they basically say, are you going to go up to the feast and, and you know, publicly make a big deal of yourself? They're mocking him in a way. They're not there. They can't have this responsibility entrusted to them. And that shows you the evidence for what Jesus has told us throughout his ministry that, that I will be a division point in natural families. And we see that in his own family, where the only natural family, the only ones of his household from his childhood at his cross are his mother. His brothers are nowhere to be found, and this division at the cross divides, but it also unites. It gives us a a new family, one that's in Christ. Jesus said that in Matthew 10, Truly, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. That's exactly what's happening in John 19. Jesus and John and Mary separated by the work of Christ 
separated from the half-brothers of Jesus, and, and now this new family forms at the foot of the cross. God provides through this same cross that divides a, a new fellowship of believers that runs deeper, as you know, than any natural relationship of, of human making, doesn't it? Don't you know the, the depth of relationship within the body of Christ, the shared love and the unity in the cross? And, and I know I'm, in, for many of you, mixing categories because many of your families know Jesus and you know that fellowship with them. But with, with family that don't, and there's division between you and them, the relational bond only goes so far. And in Christ, there's a, a depth of joy and love and shared unity won for us by Jesus and his precious blood. In these words, Jesus also completes his one outstanding responsibility in the physical realm. There, there's one thing left in the, in the physical world for Jesus to do, and that's to take care of his mom. And he has the wherewithal from the cross to be aware of that and in compassion complete that task. Now, if ever there was someone who gets a pass for not taking care of something, not getting their to-do list finished, it's Jesus on the cross, don't you think? I'm going to give him a pass. Are you? He's still going to be my sinless Savior, even if he didn't do this. But no, that's not our perfect Savior. He's going to complete his mission He's going to take care of every earthly responsibility. Even what might seem insignificant to us, it mattered to him, even in these eternally magnificent moments. He cared for his mom. So in light of that, I think it's wrong of us as followers of Jesus to make some distinction between spiritual and physical work as though one should crowd out the other or exclude the other in our lives. In the midst of seeking first the kingdom of God, we must also show our discipleship by caring for the physical responsibilities that he's entrusted to you. Taking out the trash and washing dishes and caring for your family and doing your job well to the glory of Christ are all mundane daily responsibilities that have eternal weight. And Jesus elevates all of those things right here on the cross by taking care of his one last earthly responsibility before he dies. When he says to John, behold, your mother. In this, we see his perfect example for our ongoing discipleship in all of these things. So absolutely seek first the kingdom of God as you take out the trash. Seek first the kingdom of God as you care for your responsibilities and show up on time to work and do your best. Seek first the kingdom of God as you build relationships with unbelievers and do normal things with them and pick up their leaves in the fall so as to gain entrance into their lives and speak of Jesus, the Lord you know and wish they did. Seek first the kingdom of God like our Lord does here on the cross and take care of the responsibilities entrusted to you. So in this setting of contrast and fulfillment, we see words of Jesus that are clarifying and compassionate and complete his mission. And I ask you, how then should we respond to this, our Lord Jesus? Most notably, we must respond in worship. Beloved, what a Savior. That he, in this moment, would act like this. We have great hope that he, in compassion, will treat us in our sinfulness like he does those in this scene. 
But beyond that, we must learn from our Savior, walk in this same compassion toward others. Seek to complete our discipleship by by doing all the things God's entrusted to us. Knowing we're frail and weak and we'll fail, but getting back up by His grace and doing our best for His glory. And as God entrusts to us things that are, are beyond our comprehension of how difficult they are, And as we suffer under the weight of those things, and and as that tempts us to kind of close in on ourselves, as all suffering does, and focus on, on me and how to get out of this, follow Jesus here, and in the midst of your suffering, show compassion to others. Look for ways where at the foot of your suffering, you can see others who need your care. And by his grace, get outside of yourself and your your pain and be like Jesus, serving those he's entrusted to you. And lastly, rejoice in the true unity which comes at the cross of Jesus. No one's higher than another here. Mary's not above John. John's not above Mary. Mary Magdalene's not above the rest. They stand together shoulder to shoulder at the foot of Jesus' cross now made into a new family, given a new work, a new mission to accomplish his work for his glory. Praise God that that is so. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you for the privilege to see Jesus once again. Looking at this scene and listening to his words, would you compel us to live as our Lord lived? Pray especially for those among us who may not know this Jesus. Seeing him here on this cross, would you draw them to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved? Father, those of us who are in Christ already by faith, I pray that you would help us to walk today as our Lord walked, completing our mission that you've entrusted to us for your glory. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name.